My name is Michael Brady, and I am part of the team of Linda and Michael Brady, and we both form Partners for Karmic Freedom. That is our company name and our mission in life. And this is the Cancer Project, Day 91, uh, uh, October 30th, 22. So happy Halloween, or, oh golly, what's the proper name for this? Hallows, happy Hallows, happy Hallows. Um, it was believed historically around Hallows, um, before the Christians came in, uh, when the pagans were in charge of the world, everybody who's not Christian is called a pagan, you understand, um, that, uh, Hallows was the time of the year when the veil between this plane, this space and the other side, uh, heaven or the spirit world, however it was named by uh, the pagans in history, um, when the veil is the thinnest between this reality and the next might be a modern version of that. And therefore, um, there is greater probability or greater ability to um, be in touch with, connect with the other side. Uh, so there was a belief... Uh, in lots of cultures that um, it was a time to connect with dead people, our ancestors uh, who had passed over or spirits from other realms. And then in the modern era, in the Christian era, it got all tied up in, in the devil and evil and ghost and bad spirits. So it, it it's a, it's a very mixed bag these days. And now we're trying to, get all of that out of it and just make it a, I don't know, a corny holiday. I don't know exactly where it's going at this point. But at any rate, it's also astrologically uh, a time of Scorpio this time of year. And Scorpio is about sex, death, and transformation. So Scorpio has a lot to do with uh, other dimensions, the other world, the other side, uh, the unconscious spiritual stuff. Um, on that kind of level. So all of that's wrapped up in what we call Halloween. So happy Halloween, everybody. I hope you're having a good time or you're getting in touch with uh, spirit guides or archangels or uh, ancestors or people you've lost. This is a good time of the year to to meditate. Uh, uh, If you are a meditator, this is a good time to uh, sit and, and be with yourself and go into your unconscious and be in your heart center, and then to reach out, to remember uh, people you've lost that you love, um, because you can make connection easier this time of year than you can at other times of the year, if you're on board with me about this. Um, And you can um, resolve some things. You can say hello. Uh, You can tie up some odds and ends if they didn't get tied up when the person was alive. Um, and it's a good time to just get in touch with the mysteries of life, with the mysteries of uh, more than what we can see with our eyes open and we call normal reality. Um, so at any rate, um, happy Halloween. And um, if you need to get a hold of us, uh, again, I like to open and close with this. It's kind of advertising. Um, we can be reached at karmicfreedom.com. That's our website. You can you can go there and find out all about us and what we're doing. And you can find the podcast that I'm doing here on there. 
and some products we sell and the kind of work we do and all that good stuff. And you can email us at karmicfreedom at gmail.com. And you can always get a hold of me, Michael Brady, at 802-323-6880. That is my iPhone. I'm an iPhone guy. And I'm textable. Uh, so you can call, you can email, you can text. Uh, and please feel free, if you listen to my podcast, to uh, opine, to um, send me some feedback along the way about stuff I talk about or how it affects impacts you or any issues that um, are stimulated by whatever it is I say. I'm, I'm most interested in hearing any kind of feedback from my podcast as we go down the line here. So um, the Cancer Project, day 91, uh, Linda Brady, uh, recovering from cervical cancer. We uh, formally terminated her connection to her treatment team, the chemo radiation people uh, at Tampa General this past week, let them know she wasn't coming for this last round of directed radiation. Um, they did make a little pushback. They, uh, I had sent them a message via the thing called My Chart, which is a, an app that you get these days for, with, with hospitals um, that lists all your treatments and your diagnosis and, and your medications and who's treating and all that stuff. Um, and uh, I texted the team on Wednesday and said that she had decided she was not going to complete the radiation treatments. They didn't text us. Uh, yes, they did. They texted us back. They texted me back in my chart and asked us to call in to talk to them. <laughs> when we didn't do that, they tried to call us. Uh, we, we were tied up when the phone call came in and I'm not going to change, you know, she's not going to change her mind. So there's no point in talking to them. And they stopped after that. And then shortly within hours after that, like the next day, we got all the notifications into my chart application about them canceling the scheduled dates that they had lined up for her treatment. Uh, so, that was the end of that. Now we're free to move on to the alternative treatment, the SOT, Supportive Oleonucleotide Technique Treatment, that is going to work at the stem cell level of Linda's cancer um, and uh, treat it uh, once every quarter, every three months, because once you treat it, it, it the uh, treatment works for three months. Uh, and then you have to go back and do another round of blood draw and reinfusion um, or reinjection uh, into the bloodstream. And then it's working for a, another three months. We need to go through four rounds of that. So if we start uh, this month, this next month in November with the first treatment, we'll be done next November. We'll be the, the end of that 12-month period where every three months we go in and do another blood draw and it's sent out and it's brought back and it's injected into her again. And that will completely eradicate uh, the cancer that is in her body at the cellular level, at the DNA level. I'm sorry, at the DNA level, um, at the origin of where things start, at the stem cell level. Uh, so we're excited about getting started with that. Um, 
and we're just going to find a way to make the money we need in order to finance that as we get in the line here. By working very hard, I'm going to work very hard this year if I can, if I get an opportunity uh, to earn enough money to do that. So um, how's Linda doing? Um, She is getting better all the time, clearing more, but she's still not free of either nausea or maybe um, tossing her cookies, as I like to call it, once in a while. Um, She also developed a a UTI, we like to call them an UDI, or a UDI, a urinary tract infection, uh, which is... um, what she thought she was having a lot of in the last year to 14 months or so, uh, and that it either turned out or turned into having the cervical cancer. I think it was a combination of the two. Anyway, she's uh, her cancer's gone, the, ex- the largest extent of it. And she developed a UTI in the last um, seven days, eight days. Uh, well, the screening, the pre-screening for the procedure supposed to go in the hospital for didn't pick it up. And they took blood like 10 days ago, I guess it was, or nine days ago. They should have caught this. But we went to see Dr. Uh, Young, the guy who's doing the SOT treatment, uh, in the interim. And he wanted blood in urine while we were there. And son of a gun, they picked it up very quickly. Uh, so she's getting treated for that now. She's taking antibiotics that are des- that are specifically designed for the the strain she's carrying. I think, um, and she's in the process of recovering from that. So uh, that's been um, irritating for her and um, somewhat debilitating uh, over the last week. Um, however, uh, we had a retreater in uh, over over the last four days of this past week. Uh, and it was Linda's primary uh, type of work, the retreat. She uh, was teaching dream interpretation to a person. And, of course, everything every time we teach, we also include working that issue or that process with the person in their personal life so that they not only learn about something intellectually, but they learn about it experientially with themselves, through themselves. Uh, so it's, it's um, teaching plus uh, coaching work you know, combined. Linda had the bulk of that. She carried uh, 80, 85% of that work. I, I did the supportive work. I went and got the food and uh, um, transported people where they needed to go and uh, was available to watch the dogs while she was working and, you know, that kind of stuff. I was the, I was the backup guy for most of it. Um, and she did very well with that. She was able to work uh, from 10 o'clock in the morning to 5 or 6 o'clock in the evening uh, with, with her client. Um, and then she would drop dead and go to bed. Um, and and she'd get up the next morning and go back at it. But she was able to have the energy to do that. She did that very well. And she literally would turn off, kind of like a light switch, and was done. Uh, so she was pushing a little bit. Uh, not too much, but eh, that's her nature. Um, and she did well with that. Um, so she is improving constantly, getting better. And then she has those moments where she, you know, the bottom just drops out or, 
she has pain or those kind of things. Not completely free of that. Uh, not completely healed. We're still carrying around that that bag and that tube in her kidney. Uh, we're going to see about having that evaluated this week. Uh, I have a, a, a message into her primary care provider uh, in the hospital system there, and she's um, getting a, um, a kidney specialist. I couldn't, I couldn't remember the technical name right now that I'm thinking about it. Um, it's Sunday night again, <laughs> the 30th of, uh, um, of October, and, um, and, and it's in the evening, so um, I guess I'm tired again. Um, so at any rate, um, life is good. Things are starting to come back to normal uh, as much as they can at this point, and we're making more and more progress as we go. So I, just to let you all know, that's really great. Uh, what do I want to talk about? That? I want to talk about um, growth and change and how that ties into our work or the work that anybody does in this world in terms of uh, being a, a coach, a healer, a counselor, a guide, um, you know, those kinds of things, a helping person. Uh, we're karmic astrologers and coaches, karmic coaches to people. <sighs> um, when I started working in this field uh, at 20 years old and studying psychology, uh, I was trained to be a psychotherapist in the, in the traditional field as I got my master's degree and I went to work. Uh, and the uh, diagnostic manual that we use in mental health, uh, I think it's the DSM-4 or 5 now, it was the DSM-2 or 3 when I started, um, basically identifies what's wrong with a person. And then if there's a medication to help with that, or back in my day, psychotherapy to help with that, the um, the healer, the person, the, the provider would administer to the issue or the disease or the discomfort of the person, whatever that was. Uh, and if you look at the history of the world, that that's the history of a, a patient and a healer, is that a patient comes to a healer because we need them to help us get better with something. It could be physical, it can be emotional, it can be mental, it can be spiritual. Um, and sometimes it incorporates all those things depending on the time frame and the paradigm of uh, helping that, that you look at across the boards in the world. Um, the last 2,000 years, healing has been a passive art mostly, most of the time, and that is that the uh, the person who has a I'll call it the problem, comes to the healer and the healer uh, does something, a ritual. Uh, well, they first they name. This is the universal process of healing, anthropologically speaking, across all cultures and time for the last 10,000 years. As, as you have a look at this, um, the patient comes to the healer with a malady of some sort. And the first thing that the healer needs to do universally is to name what is wrong, to give it a name, 
Ah, so like our diagnostic manual is how we give names to things. Well, we've always been doing that um, across all cultures. Um, so that's not really news in 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 our modern time frame here with our diagnostics. Um, and that's necessary. If you don't do that, healing can't occur. The second thing that a healer does is they prescribe a ritual. A ritual can be an intervention of some sort. So today, currently, often, it's that a doctor writes a script and you go to a drugstore and they give you a drug and you take the drug. That's a ritual of healing. Uh, in a in another time in another culture in Africa, let's say a um, hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, um, a, a villager would have come to the shaman or the witch doctor, however they would have named the healer in that cultural group in time, and the witch doctor, I'll just use that term for now, would have have. Um, diagnose what was wrong and they would have probably told them that it was some sort of uh, evil spirit uh, uh, or a devil or demon or uh, that that put a curse on them or or inhabited their life or intruded in their life and so that's naming what's wrong and then and then the witch doctor would have done some sort of a ritual. He would have killed a chicken and used the blood of the chicken or the feathers, and he would have used some incense and smoke or a rattle, and he would have done a procedure, a ritual over the person, with the person, on the person, and sent them home or had them stay in the presence of the healer for some period of time, 24 to 48 hours or something like that. And they get better when they get treated. So you, you go to a healer, a healer diagnoses, names what's wrong, diagnoses it, and then prescribes something, a ritual, to 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 create, generate healing. Okay, So it doesn't matter what culture and across what time you have a look at it. The words change and what we do changes, but it's the same structure all the time. Most of our recorded history, that has been passive. That is that the healer does something to the person and they it makes them get better, which is also how we've come to believe in or feel a lot in our modern culture that doctors are uh, all-knowing, all-seeing, uh, and you don't argue with doctors and you don't uh, uh, disagree with the doctor and the doctor always knows best, uh, you know, that sort of history we have in our in our world and our culture over the last hundred years, let's say, in the United States, um, comes from that. Um, well, in the age of Aquarius, which we're now in, the beginning of the age of Aquarius, we're closing out, we've closed out the age of Pisces. I believe we're clearly, by the cosmological calendar done with Pisces and in the beginning of Aquarius. I think we're done our spiritual childhood in the beginning of our spiritual adulthood. Um, in the age of Aquarius, the next 2,000 years, I believe healing's going to take a whole nother path uh, because just like the, uh, the change in the path from um, child to adult, going from, in healing, going from... Um, Passive to active, from 
done to to self-directed healing, self-chosen healing, self-healing. And actually, that's the truth of it anyway. When you peel it down, all healing is self-healing. Healing is a magical process. And a magical process is defined as anything you can't explain, if you think about it. Magic is anything you can't explain. So, you know, 100 years ago, there are things that we do today that we would have called magical because we couldn't explain them. Uh, iPhones would be, ma- I mean, just imagine if you could jump in a time machine and draw, you know, and jump back to uh, 1845 and show up with an iPhone that worked, okay? So it would have to trans-dimensionally be hooked to the Wi-Fi service <laughs> in this world. But at any rate, going with the, going with the example, um, having a, a working iPhone and showing that to somebody in 1845 and showing them something from their world on the phone that had meaning to them, I don't know what that would be, but or even just you know the games or the apps on our iPhone, uh, or or the pictures or the or the videos that we have in our phones, any of the stuff we have in our smartphones, oh, or just in 1845, the idea that you could talk to somebody 100 miles away or 300 miles away or 500 miles away by looking at this thing and and talking to it and their voice, somebody's voice from far away coming, anybody. Anybody, everybody in 1845 would have looked at that piece of equipment and said, that's magic, because they'd have no way to explain any of that. None whatsoever. So magic is anything that we can't explain. And uh, in the age of Pisces and in our cosmic childhood, healing has been seen as something magic because we can't explain what happens. Well, we have some ability, I think we have some ability now to explain how healing occurs because it, it, it's, it's not something that we make happen. It's something that naturally occurs in the body, that there is a home, um, homeopathic process uh, in the human body, that, that the body moves constantly in a, in, into a state of discomfort, disease, and then out of it into comfort and ease, out of disease to, to health and health to disease. It's cyclical. It's seasonal, like the seasons, like most things on the earth plane are repetitive and in a cycle, uh, birth and death over and over, uh, generation after generation. People come and go on this planet. That's a cycle. That's a season. Um, healing is like that too. The body works like that too. Um, so uh, from a homeopathic perspective, uh, on a physical level, even healing has been seen as, as um, giving the body a little more of what's wrong, a very diluted, distilled part of what's wrong with it, the pathogen that's causing disease, dis, uh, unease, illness, and that cues the body to shift from the cycle it's in in the other direction to come back out of disease into health. In other words, what you gave the person uh, that was homeopathic didn't actually cause them to get better. It alerted the body the unconscious, the brainstem, whatever you want, whatever 
level you want to operate at here or explain that here to yourself to go, oh, it's time to move in the other direction and the body takes care of itself. Well, if you think about how long we've been here, thousands and thousands of years, uh, there are a lot of uh, time in our history where there was no such thing as a doctor around. There was no such thing as a healer around. And uh, still, people tend to heal more often than not. Otherwise, our species would have been extinct a long time ago with trauma, disease, um, unpleasant things happening along the way in life. So, what what the age Aquarius, the age of Aquarius is going to do, I believe, is work with that knowledge better than we have in the last, let's say, 300 years in modern medicine. Um, we are going to um, understand more and start to work in ways with people that uh, foster them to be more actively involved in their disease as well as their healing, and that uh, we will work with the way that our bodies want to work. A a lot of allopathic medicine, uh, allopathic uh, refers to surgery and pharmaceutical drug interventions and illnesses in in our world. Um, A lot of our traditional medicine in modern medicine that I'm talking about, allopathic medicine, really sees disease as something that's unnatural, shouldn't happen. And there because, uh, and because it happens, we need to attack or destroy the pathogen, the agent responsible, the thing involved in the body that is causing what's unnatural. And if we kill off the enemy, what's unnatural, then health is restored. I mean, that's what pharmaceutical drugs are doing. Um, a lot of times, the I mean, if you watch the the ads at night for the medications we're hawking these days uh, on the TV, and you read all the, uh, hear all the side effects, all the f- possible things that can go along with this curing your skin disorder or your UC or whatever the heck it is that you got going on, um, Half the time you think to yourself, why would I take the medication in the first place? Because the list of stuff it can do to me beside what's wrong with me sounds as bad, if not worse, than what I got in the first place. Um, That's because a lot of what we do with allopathic medicine is like um, having a fly on the wall, a nice white wall in your house, in your room, and thinking, got to get rid of that fly. So you go over to the the uh, closet and you pull out a a twelve gauge double barrel shotgun, open that baby up, pop two shells in, click it shut, and blow that fly away. Trouble is, you took half the wall out with it. Well, that's a lot of what allopathic medicine does. It's a lot of overkill, very concentrated, and has all those side effects. That's all that other rest of the wall going with the fly there along the way in in my analogy. Um, Natural healing doesn't do that. Homeopathic healing doesn't work that way. It doesn't create uh, casualties along the way to getting better because it also doesn't see disease as the enemy or something that needs to be destroyed like in a war, like in a conflict, take them out, take the bad guy out kind of thing. It's not held in the same way. It's held in that cyclical natural cycle framework 
which is the way that our bodies are really working most of the time every day. That doesn't mean to say that modern medicine, allopathic medicine, doesn't have a role, but we propagate it as the all-knowing, comprehensive understanding of how this works, and it really not, is not. It's a subroutine of how things really work, as far as I can tell from my life and education and my experiences. So the the healing of life is something that's magical and is actually carried out by our body, which is another way of saying carried out by our unconscious mind. Um, you know, science today believes that consciousness evolves from the brain. They talk about the brain as generating consciousness. I think they have it backwards. Consciousness generates the brain, not the brain generates consciousness. Before there was matter, there was energy. Energy is like thought. Thought doesn't have substance. Matter has substance. Awareness, consciousness, doesn't have substance. It's energy of some sort. We may call it spirit, but that's a kind of energy. It's not matter. So I think as we move into the age of Aquarius, we're going to be able and we're finally understanding enough to begin to really start to treat the foundations, the causes of illness and disease, which has to do with energy, which ultimately has to do with consciousness. So now we come to healing on a practical level. You know, the most common thing that people use to say they need help these days is one of the things is the word stress. Oh, my life is so, I'm so stressed by my life. Uh, I'm thinking of um, a guy I had come to me uh, because he was t- so stressed out by his job at the time that he couldn't sleep. He was having trouble sleeping. Okay, so why are you having trouble sleeping? Well, because I'm so stressed with my job that it wakes me up in the middle of the night or four o'clock in the morning and I can't go back to sleep because I've got all this stuff on my mind and yada, yada, okay, and I, and I can't relax. Well, that gets him in the door. Uh, that allows him to come to somebody and say, can you help me with this? Uh, you know, most men can't bleed and... and um, aren't supposed to bleed and um, just um, uh, carry on and um, fix it yourself kind of thing. A lot of men are in that psychology. We're raised in that kind of psychology, that kind of mind frame. And a lot of men don't ask for help. But when they do ask for help, it usually is around a word like stress. So this person comes to me with stress around work, and and I say, okay, I can help you with that. Well, the first thing I'm doing is I'm asking them for their birth data so I can run their chart because I want to look at uh, their north and south node. I want to know what their spiritual mission is in this lifetime, their path, why they came here based on that that, uh, chart information. And I also want to look at all the other placements in their chart because it gives me a diagnostic, anything you could get in the hospital by a psychiatrist or anything else, and then some. Uh, it covers the waterfront. When you understand how to use the chart the right way, especially karmically in in my framework of saying the right way, um, you can 
see anything you need to see about what's going on with a person sooner or later, one way or another, through that instrument, through that that instrument as a diagnostic tool. And, and that's the way Linda and I see uh, a birth chart, a, a natal chart, uh, uh, an astrological chart is a diagnostic tool that we're using with a person that we're trying to help. So I would, I would run, I ran his uh, chart and he's not interested in astrology and he's not interested in karma. Um, this person I have in mind came because his wife uh, told him to come <laughs> because she's more interested in stuff and she had been involved with us as a life coach and one thing leads to another, you know how that goes. Uh, and uh, he ended up, at her instigation, making connection around his stress and his inability to sleep at night around work. Well, that led to quite a long-term relationship. Uh, I'm still working um, with the person. And so I don't need to talk astrology. I don't need to tell this person what their soul mission is. I just need to say, I can help you with your your lack of sleep. I can help you with the stress. I can help you correct what's going on on the, on the level that you're identifying with, which is in his case was the physical level up front. Well, one thing leads to another. If a person does not one appointment, but a series of appointments, if a person... Uh, is agreeable uh, to the truth of the matter is uh, that they need to work on something for a while, which means they need to you know come back every every week or work every week in a regular way on something. If I can get them over that hump and they engage that way, and I can get them to work for six months or longer, but I. I impose a frame of six months on people when they begin to do uh, real work on themselves because it's hard to get really anything accomplished in less than six months. That's just the way that our bodies tend to want to work most of the time along along with our minds and our hearts. Um, as I work in with the person, I start on top where they come from. So, so we, so we talk about tension in the body and relaxation and what are you thinking about? Thinking, feelings and thought, feel thought and feelings back and forth. And it starts with the job, the thing on top, what their hours are, what the pressures of the job are, what their bosses are like, what the, uh, how things work. Uh, at work for them that causes them the stress. And slowly I, I work them from out there in the job back to me, myself, themselves. Okay, so what's going on inside of me? Uh, and, you know, that starts with asking a, first asking a person to, to um, say more about what they think about, how they think about what's going on what they think when it's going on, when they wake up in the middle of the night, when they're awake for three hours, what are you thinking? Um, and then f from an overview, what do you think about your work? What do you think about your job? What do you think about your boss? What do you think about what you're doing with your life? Those kinds of questions. Uh, and gradually that helps me get the, a person uh, especially men in our culture, to a place where I can start asking them about their, wait for it, feelings. Because, you know, men don't really want to talk about feelings too much. Um, but 
if you're stressed, at some point I get to say to a person who's stressed, I have stress in my life. What flavor is that stress? When you wake up in the middle of the night, are you feeling glad, mad, sad, scared, ashamed? Start with five words. I have a very simple emotional model that I've used for 40-some years now that I can't even remember how I came up with it. I'm, I'm sure I've read some stuff along the way, but I also toss it into my own hopper. Um, at this point, I just call it my own model. Um, I use five emotional words, glad, mad, sad, scared, and ashamed, to describe emotion, human emotion. I take the word shame and isolate that out and explain to a person over time how that can be distorted into what we call guilt. Because I don't, I don't think guilt and shame are the same thing. I think guilt is derived from shame. I think guilt is unnatural and man-made and artificial on some level. And I think that shame is what God built in, or whoever you want to ascribe source to, and is natural. And I think all the natural feelings, glad, mad, sad, scared, and ashamed, are constructive for us as people that they were meant to be constructive, that unless we mess with them, they have a constructive purpose in our life and they show up to help us in life. When we feel scared, when we feel sad, when we feel mad, when we feel ashamed, those are not wrong things happening. Those are right things happening in terms of our feelings. And if they're a response to here and now, whatever's happening physically, experientially in our life, is right now, those feelings, when they show up, a feeling shows up, it is the appropriate, useful, positive feeling to help us get through that experience. Now, those feelings get contaminated along the way because us being sentient beings at this point, we can think about, we're, we're unique in this sense. If I mean, like dolphins and, and whales and tigers and lions and bears don't have the awareness, the consciousness that we have around time, for instance. We can think of a thousand years ago. We can think of a hundred years from now. We can think of last year. We can think of two years from now up ahead. I don't think a lot of animals that we know on this planet think in those time frames, have awareness. doesn't seem like it. We don't have any proof of it. Um, so anyway, I'm going to go with that as a bias, <laughs> what I think is true. That's unique about us, and that uniqueness means that we can time travel in our mind, if you will. And it's the time traveling in our mind that messes with our emotions, messes up our emotions, in my opinion, from my journey and my learnings in this lifetime. So there's the here and now emotion, the natural emotion that's evoked from whatever's going on in your face in the here and now. And there is the contaminated emotions generated by past memory, what we're remembering, and future contaminated feelings that are associated with what we think about the future. If you think about it, When you think about the past, when you remember the past, you don't literally remember the past. These are just the facts, ma'am. You remember a sample of what happened. Not everything that happened, a sample of what happened. And you also have an emotional flavor, an attitude about what happened that you're carrying along with you. An attitude is a, a derivative from a raw emotion, in my opinion. 
So when you think about the past, you're not thinking of something that's literally true anymore, and it may not even be an, a, a totally true version of what happened. It's just your sample of a version of what happened. And every time you remember something, the same thing again over these type of years, you don't always remember it the same way. So there's an example of the fact that it's not really the facts, ma'am. It's my version of the facts, my impression of the facts. Okay, so it's a partial memory of something that literally happened to us. And it's flavored by the attitude that we carry around with it. So when you think about the past and it generates, it regenerates the emotion that went with it, if it was sad, scared, mad, or, or guilty, a distortion of shame, I would call that contaminated emotion because the emotion's going on in your body right here, right now. It's real. But the event that supposedly is causing the emotion that's real in your body is no longer true if it's past-oriented. If it's future-oriented, it's speculative. The idea, the thought that's generating the real emotion that's going on in your body right here and right now is about something that may never happen and often never happens, often never happens. If you if you think about your life and how often you've speculated about your future and then how often when you've gotten, that turns out to be the present, it matches what you thought of, that doesn't happen too often, does it? And especially exactly the way that you think about the future. Well, any emotional attitude you have about that, and most of the time when we think about the future, if you want to look at it, we don't end up with a glad attitude when we think about the future. We end up with an angry, a frustrated, or we end up with a scared. Oh, I don't know if that'll happen. I don't know if I can have that. I don't know if I deserve that. These are thoughts we're having around some future speculation. We don't really end up with the glad emotion attached to the future. We don't often end up with the glad emotion attached as an attitude to our past recollections of our life very often. Hmm. And therefore, the emotion that gets generated in your body by the past and the future speculation, I'll call it now, is contaminated in the sense that it doesn't reflect emotionally a response to what's going on right here, right now. And if it does match the emotion that's going on right here, right now in your face, it's exaggerating. It's ex- it's it's adding to it's it's adding more intensity to the emotion that literally what's happening to you now is generating as a response from you on an emotional level. So I start talking to people. I start talking to this person who comes in with stress about their feelings, questioning their feelings. Um, how did you feel? when you woke up that morning? How do you feel about what happens at work when this goes down and blah, 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 okay? So that's starting to tie mental ideas, thinking, to feelings and feelings to thinking. We spend a lot of time disconnecting our emotional stuff completely from our lives and actually scientifically, we're just trying to be heads these days more than not, (laughs) And you shouldn't need emotions unless they feel good. Well, it doesn't work that way. If you 
open yourself to one emotion, you open yourself to all emotions. If you shut your down, yourself down to one emotion, you're shutting yourself down to all emotions. You can't really pick and choose in terms of how you connect to the emotional part of yourself, the emotional part of your apparatus. So over the course of uh, two, three, four, five weeks, a month, two months, three months, four months, five months, six months, I can get a person finally, even a guy, a, a really identifiable kind of guy, to be more connected to what's going on inside of themselves, you see, in relation to what's going on outside. And then if I can get a person to connect to their emotions functionally outside of the session and just not in hindsight, but as they're going down the line because of the work we're doing and, and the homework I give, I, everybody works with a journal, uh, a blank notebook. You have to write in it by hand. You can't use a uh, a keyboard uh, and electronics uh, to journal because when you write by hand on paper with pen, pencil, ink, you are literally transferring energy into the paper, into what you're writing. Well, one of the energies that get conveyed into a letter, let's call it now, or a journal, is your emotions. So that when you journal that way, you literally are feeling better when you get done journal. You feel less burdened. You feel less pent up emotionally because the emotion was talked about and conveyed. The energy was actually conveyed, transferred to the paper on that sense. And it's held by the paper in the matter of the paper. So journaling starts to help a person feel better and they're connecting their thinking with their feelings and now they're connecting their present with their past and their future. And meanwhile, I've got the karmic chart in front of me and I haven't said a word, I'm not explaining any astrology to a person necessarily. I'm just using what I can get out of their chart uh, while I coach them, while I'm helping them figure out themselves. I'm not figuring them out. Well, I am, but... I'm not telling them in that fashion uh, what I'm, what's going on with them because my words are never going to count as much as their words. My explanations are never going to count as much as their explanations. The meaning isn't going to stick to the wall that comes from my voice. It's going to stick to the wall that comes from their own voice. So the most powerful way that any coach can work with someone is not in what we're explaining to them but in what we can ask them about, they end up claiming, explaining, discovering, speaking for themselves. So that ideally what you can do is a coaches go, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I agree with, yeah, I think that fits. Yeah, yeah, I can see how it works that way. Yeah, I can see how that would would help. Those kind of comments are us affirming what somebody else has told us for themselves and about themselves. There is no more powerful way to help somebody grow than that sort of dynamic in terms of the relationship and how you interact with them, in my opinion. So over the course of weeks and months, what happens is stress turns into more specific understandings and spreads out into more parts than just the simple tension, stress refers to tension, tension in myself in relation to the one thing that I identified at the beginning, which would be my job in this example. It leads to 
well, because the memories, the remembering in the past and speculating about the future, inevitably is going to bring in, guess what, other players. And other players are going to eventually end up being people in your life other than the people you work with. Eventually, it's going to get us back to our families, our current families, our birth families, our historical families. It's going to get us back to our relationships with our friends even, things like that. So that over time, this junk word of stress, which we use so often in our culture, and that men use a lot, most more than probably any other one, if they talk about themselves very much, um, becomes much more specified and about more things than just the one thing, the tension called stress that's keeping me from sleeping. And once you can, I can get a person uh, to that place where they're thinking and feeling and I'm helping them get in touch with the fact that they live in their head most of the time. 90% of the time when their eyes are open, maybe, or 85% of the time. And that there's another place equal to their mind, their head, their brain, which is their heart center. And that also is a mind, a part of your mind. Uh, the heart, the human heart and the human brain are the two rational, autonomous organs, physical manifestations of what we call consciousness in the human mind in the human body. Uh, if you don't believe me, you can l- read some of this stuff in background for yourself. There's an excellent book that talks about the human heart uh, called The Secret Teachings of Plants. Secret Teachings of Plants. And the guy's name, the author is uh, John, I think first name is John Buner, B-H-U-N-E-R. If you just look up the title, The Secret Teachings of Plants, you'll find this book. It's not a big book. It's not real thick. Um, this, this man is a, um, I believe he's a botanist by training, a PhD in botany. Um, and he, and he's, he, he's been interested in his life in, in, um, medicines, uh, how we get medicines, how they're pulled out of the forest, how we find them, how we, um, find the right drugs to work for the right people, the right medicines to work for the right people. Uh, and the first half of the book of of of, of the secret teachings of plants is strictly about the physiology and the functioning of the human heart. That's not do with plants for half the book. And then in the second half of the book, he talks about how the medicinal plants that we have developed that we use to heal ourselves form less than. of all the plants on the planet, less than 1% of all the plants on the planet. So imagine walking into the Amazon forest. I don't, I mean, I have, I couldn't identify 97% of the stuff I would probably see in the Amazon forest if I could get there. Um, Somebody walked into those forests are healers, ancient other healers, previous healers, walked into that forest, a forest like that anywhere in the world, and they walked out with a plant that suited the purpose they need to uh, heal a certain wound, to uh, salve some other kind of malady, to create healing in a disease. It's got to be something greater than 
random chance. I mean, the odds that you could go in and come out with the right thing are way – it's like being struck by lightning or hitting the lottery for $6 billion. I mean, how you know, one person out of 497,000 people score those kinds of things. It's those kind of odds. And yet we have a reliable body of knowledge that – well, what he posits in his book in the second half about the healing – plants of the world is that healers are all heart-centered historically, especially before they became scientific. But even some of the scientific ones, uh, they just kept their mouth shut most of the time about this part of what they were doing. But a healer walks into a forest in connection with their heart, operating from the brain in their chest. And when you do that, you're in touch with your emotional process your emotions directly, whereas when you're in in your head, you can think about your emotions, like you could speculate about the temperature of the water in the pool down below there, but you're not wet and you can't stick your hand in and feel it. You can just think about it. Well, that's the way being in our head is in terms of uh, our emotions, um, but your heart is directly in connection with the pool of water. Your heart feels the emotions. The emotions come through your heart. So your heart is the part of your mind, your brain, that is in direct connection with your emotions. And in fact, your 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 heart center thinks about life in the world through the language of your emotions, like your head thinks about the world through your, your thoughts, your lang- your English, your Spanish, your your uh cognition in your head. So healers Historically, anthropologically, he's pausing in his book and he supports with evidence. Uh, Are people who have gone into the forest in connection with that part of themselves, with their hearts and their... And when you're in that space through your body, they've walked into the forest and said, forest, plant, something, tree... I need, I want such and such to help this person with such and such, a fever, uh, a boil, something that's wrong. And they've listened with their heart, not thought with their head. They've listened with their heart as they go through the forest. Less than 1% of the plants there won't kill us. (laughs) Um, And and will cure us, and they they find, they're guided to, he points out how they've been guided to, we've been guided to the right plant in that myriad of all those plants. Then um, when I was in Vietnam, um, when I was a youth, <laughs> when I was 20, uh, and they were training me to go over, uh, over to the war kind of thing, uh, just in case I got trapped in the bush, they uh, trained us about how to survive until, you know, we either got killed or we got rescued kind of thing. And one of the things they taught us was if you're stranded in the bush, now this is in the tropics again too because Vietnam happened in the tropics, but it's true of any forest probably across the boards. They said uh, if you're starving to death and you're keeping your head down and you really, really, really need to eat something, you want to look around for the bugs and insect because the facts are that 90-some percent, 97 percent of all the insects in the world are edible. 
and insects are like 70% protein. They're, they're very high in protein. They're very low in fat. Sounds like a good diet these days, right? Um, and, um, and if you eat a plant, you have a, uh, and I'm not sure this proportion, but you have like a, a, a 35% chance that if you just picked the plant up in a forest and ate it for food, that it wouldn't kill you, that it wouldn't kill you, something like 35%. So you've got, the odds are against you. If you pick up a plant in a forest and you eat it, the odds are greatest that it will literally kill you. If you pick up an insect and eat it, 90-some percent of the time, the odds are that it won't kill you and you'll actually get some food sustenance. So they told us if you're in the bush and you're not sure of the plant or the thing hanging off the plant, you might want to call fruit, don't eat it. Look around on the ground, find a grub, find a, a worm, a moth, um, anything that's an insect, and pop it in your mouth and eat it because you will survive that. It won't kill you. So this book is really an interesting read. Uh, the first half is about the heart and then the heart's connection to botany, to how we have derived healing plants in the world. So healing has been passive a lot up until now, and as we go forward, it's going to become more self-directed and homeopathic and active, uh, and that um, healers are really all all going to turn into what we like to call ourselves these days, coaches. Not a godlike person who does magic, but a person who is able to elicit the wisdom of one's own knowledge, one's own unconscious knowledge, one's own unconscious mind, one's un, un, unconscious uh, innate knowledge of healing as a natural process and how to catalyze healing because in homeopathic view, uh, it's not killing something off because it's bad in your body. It's activating the body to shift out of dis-ease back into ease, out of dis-ease into health. And that that's not something that we make happen. It's something that we elicit happening in the human body. And Linda's process has been a, a combination of both things. We could see um, her first treatments, the chemo and the, and the radiation, as very allopathic. And it is definitely based in war. We're going in there to kill something. And we're going to use something extremely toxic like ammunition, like napalm, like a gun, to kill something toxic in the body, which is really what her radiation and chemo was like for her body. And we could see the, the, the SOT treatment, the alternative treatment that she's about to start, as much more homeopathic because it's going into the body to alter, to change something slightly around at the stem cell level to prevent the very basis of the cancer, in this case, from beginning. And it's telling the body not to go in a certain direction and the body is responding to that. It's much gentler process. It's not toxic to her body. It's only toxic to the cancer because the cancer dies. 
at the stem cell level in her body over the course of the year. Anyway, um, just wanted to talk about that a bit tonight. So um, our framework on disease and healing is changing gradually in our culture at this point. People who are more holistic, more spiritual, uh, alternative, are shifting the paradigm, this paradigm, out of the old view, the old Piscean way, I could call it, to the new Aquarian way. And it's a much more natural and I think a better understanding of how things work in the body um, than we've been using for a while. And it goes with us becoming adults, which is more autonomous, more in charge of ourselves, free to do what we choose to, uh, rather than more childlike, which is dependent, codependent, and uh, requiring the help of something magical and more power than ourselves outside of us to uh, take care of us sometimes, which is a way to understand parenting and childhood, I suppose. Anyway, that's my rant for tonight. Uh, <laughs> hope it was entertaining. Um, and uh, I'm going to do a podcast every week, every Sunday night, as things look now. Uh, and in between, I think I'm going to try to also do some podcasts outside of the Cancer Project. Um, I have a, a friend who was, was a client, uh, a lady, here in Tampa, Florida, who was literally struck by lightning and survived it. And um, she was uh, on a beach with uh, a friend, a man, a male friend, who she was interested in and they were beginning to date. And they both got struck at the same time. They were within like three feet of each other. Um, And he died. He didn't survive and she did. Uh, and um, in the aftermath of that, um, she found me. Uh, and basically came to me because she wanted to to sort out, to make peace, that she needed to talk to somebody about the fact that her friend, her possible boyfriend, died and she survived. So she was having survivor's guilt and survivor's grief. Um and it was a very interesting um, six months to a year that I worked with her around that incident uh, or, or the aftermath of that incident. And it was hugely transformative with her. Anyway, um, she's uh, expressed an interest in doing a podcast with me. So I want to, and I said, yeah, let's do that. Um, so soon, uh, the first thing I want to do is uh, get her uh, in here with me on a podcast that doesn't have anything to do with the Cancer Project, uh, and share her story, her journey uh, with you all. Uh, so that's coming. Um, and uh, I look forward to talking to you again. I just can't seem to keep this to 20 minutes. This is an hour and three minutes now. I don't know. I may, may be too talkative. Who knows? Anyway, thank you for listening. I am Michael Brady of Partners for Karmic Freedom. And uh, again, feel free to opine anything you have to say about what I talk about or its impact on you and your life, I am willing and really uh, interested in hearing about. So um, reach out, uh, text, uh, email, uh, call me if you want to. Uh, I'd be happy to hear from you all. So have a good week, and I'll talk to you the next time.